Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Shankleberg. And this is Greg Hutchins. Hey, Greg. <laughs> good talking to you. I, you know, before we get online here, I know you're up in Portland and you're telling me that it's like summer sometimes up there this time of year. And I'm like, oh, man. And not enough snow. And I thought you were getting buried in rain. So <laughs> I'm glad you're doing well, having fun. Um, but I... I we were just chatting about that for a minute. And then I said, Hey, I got a question that came in this actually this morning and it triggered a thought that I wanted to talk to you about. It was the basic question was, Hey, I'm using this formula. It was the sample size equation. Um, and it was, if I run some number of units over, you know, and she's had, uh, I don't know, a thousand hours or whatever the duration was. Um, then I can say that it's this reliable with this confidence and it's using the binomial distribution with zero failures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I said, well, why a thousand hours? How long does your product need to last? Oh, it needs to last 10,000 hours or whatever her, the actual numbers were. And says, well, why are you only testing for a thousand hours? Well, that's all the time we have. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> you realize that when you run the test, it, means nothing about 10,000 hours. It means only that it'll likely last if no failures occur. And I went through that and then she said, well, and she kind of pushed it a couple different ways and says, but we also need to use fewer samples. So we, we, we're going to, the thousand hours is the cumulative hours we're doing and it was well, how many samples do you have? We only have ten. So you're running ten samples for a hundred hours. Okay. <laughs> you know, the way this formula works is not the way you're using it, you know, kind of thing. And I've had a handful of discussions with clients and other folks over the last couple of weeks that are, you know, I don't think the Arrhenius equation works in that circumstance. It was a metal creep problem when it's under load and they were using the Arrhenius equation. And I was like, how are you using this? Well, we're just substituting in the, the amount of load instead of temperature. You know, you, that Arrhenius equation is actually a chemist name. It's a chemistry equation and it's for chemical reactions it really has very little to do with metal fatigue and creep, you know, and you know, uh, what's it called when a spring gets set? It, um, it's under such a load that it loses its spring coefficient. Uh, it goes from linear to nonlinear. Yeah. And, and I, I think there's a different formula for that. And, you know, kind of thing. And they're like, Oh really? No, we use Arrhenius for everything. Okay. Where does this come from, Greg? And, and why, you know, we open a book and go, oh, that might work. And then we throw in some numbers in it and then off we run. And I, 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 I just, I, do, do, I mean, other than the page for the formulas, did you actually read the stuff around it about where it's used and why it's used and everything? Oh, no, I don't have time for that. 
I'm just kind of, ah. I've done both. So here's my latest little project. True story. So when we were both in engineering school, we had basically the plug and play formulas. Mm -hmm. They'd present the formulas in some type of integral and basically that was too much. So we'd transfer it basically to a algebraic equation or a linear equation and just plug in the numbers and get a response. Yeah. Did we really understand like stress strain, what's going on? I'm not talking about the microscopic level. I'm just simply talking about the delta level. But mm -hmm. here's the story. My daughter, Margot, is going to a graduate school in AI, artificial intelligence. And she's got a degree in a CS degree from Oregon State. Uh, but a lot of people going to Georgia Tech, good school, top five in the country, are non-CS majors also non-engineers. So just the basic interfacing with the database and, and the regression algorithms that are being used and the fitting models and all that stuff is kind of just a box <laughs> to it's some of them. In terms of entertaining the kids or educating the kids in ML, you know, machine, machine learning, learning, there is a, the number one tool is called gradient descent. Mm -hmm. It's basically a triple integral called the cost function. And to solve the, uh, the integral, it's sort of a, like a mini max. You find a 3D surface, think of a mountain, and mm -hmm. try to find the fastest, most efficient way down the mountain. So you use iterative type stuff, you know, yeah. to solve the equation. So as a geek, I'm thinking and talking to my daughter, she should have two years of calculus, She'd have one year of linear algebra, one year of probability or statistics, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, <laughs> and probably one year of differential equations. Yep, yep. So this is what you need to solve the math, this complicated 3D, uh, uh, you know, a multiple integral function. Mm -hmm. And you use linear algebra, matrix, matrix algebra, to iterate this, this solution. Number one tool in ML. Number one tool in AI. Yeah. And she going, oh, no, we just use ChatGPT. Well, that's the point. <laughs> now, Stanford, your school, and Georgia Tech are teaching this intuitively. Okay, what thinking, does that mean? Well, <laughs> yeah. <what laughs> just like, what, it's like what you just described. Pretend the data set's a model, a mountain, and we don't know its shape, so we have to figure out the best way to go down it. So we just try everything. And exactly is that right. intuitive instead of actually how you do it? That's exactly right. And they're, they're teaching this stuff, even in Stanford, you know, the probably the best CS program in the world. They're teaching this intuitively, unless you've got a heavy duty math degree, and then you can take this specialized course that they don't recommend. It's only for, for the real geeks get to go there. and Yeah, the uber geeks, yeah. which, of course, you know, which one I would take, right? Oh, yeah, I do. It's, it's, a, it's a classic problem. You got this integral, you know, this multiple <laughs> integral. You got this cost function, and you want to find the minimization on that. And people simply, in AI, are plugging in numbers, hoping that they're going to get a solution that works for them. Not, uh, 
understanding. Yeah, not understanding. I mean, because you can make a small variation in that assumption, or worse, it's just a random guess. And you'll find an optimum solution for the wrong mountain to follow the analogy. (laughs) That's right. Kind of thing. And, And you'll get a number out. You know, and I've heard that from people is they, well, I plugged the numbers in my Excel sheet and I got this number out. It says, you know, and I actually had a legal case where they showed me a, a data plot and they, their conclusion was um, their fitted data showed that it had a, like a 10% probability of failing two months before it was manufactured. <laughs> and I, really? <laughs> Did you not even do a sniff test on this? You know, if your result comes in as impossible, um, doesn't that raise any alarm bells or anything like that? And the lawyer, you know, was right. But it was just, I I don't know why, but I learned a lot of this stuff and also a lot of the regression stuff that I learned was all pretty manual. It wasn't until later that I started using uh, software packages because they were just becoming available. That's exactly right. You've got to go through it manually X number of times. I mean, when I was in engineering many, many years ago, we'd have these Shams outlines. And I'd go through, you know, one problem, 50, 100 data sets, right? Until finally, intuitively, I got what was going on. And this is simple stuff. Yeah. But nowadays, 3D models, data sets that are huge, you know. Well, it's not even 3D models. I mean, there's probably a thousand dimensions of inputs on these things. And, you know, the... the, the, um, I remember way back when, I'm trying to remember what they called it, neural network. Yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> problems. And it's really useful for nonlinear, you know, spaces and nonlinear problem solving uh, where you can do really fancy, you know, linear regression, yet it just falls apart when the world isn't linear, whether you call it a logarithm or, or not, but it doesn't follow a nice smooth curve. And if it's a, imagine that if, if you wanted to model, the surface of still water, right? You take into account the, how big it is and the curvature of the earth. It's, it's just the disc, right? Mm-hmm. And it's maybe has some curvature on it. So you could do that with a simple linear model. Now add some wind. <laughs> There's ripples and waves and throw a rock in it at random times and have a boat go by and somebody on a jet ski and now model that surface of that water. And yeah, there are ways to do it and there's ways to animate it and and simulate it and all the other stuff. But that's kind of my analogy of, you know, simple linear regression that we learn that we all dreaded in undergrad stats classes, which they don't even teach much anymore to these, you know, language, massive language models and AI models and in the neural network modeling that they're doing now, it's still has basic fundamental assumptions and fundamental boundaries of what where it works and where it doesn't work. You know, I I, I wouldn't go to a, a a language model that's trained only on English, and uh, I don't want to say American English, and and ask it a question about Swahili in their native dialect. It probably would not figure out much to do about that. That would be useful. Yes, 
So I've been giving lots of talks on AI lately. And one of the challenges is that many years ago, a lot of the models we used had linear outputs. So, mm -hmm. you know, causation, you have something, you have an input, you have an output. We understand what's going on under the hood. So there's a correlation, there is a causation between input and output. Then basically we went to correlations where we had the input, but the output basically was correlated. It was, yeah, it was kind of, what's the, I understand one of the, uh, like the, the uh, I'm trying to think of the, the little bots that we can talk to basically, or they say, Hey, write me an essay or something like this on it. You put a prompt in, I think chat GPT is an example is that it's basically saying, well, what's the probability of the, the next word the next word exactly. and, and just, all right, well, if we say the, then the next one's going to be probability. Okay. And then they kind of run through that algorithm and create, you know, sometimes pretty reasonable paragraphs. Yet it's, it's, it's re it's because of the computer power and all of the training they did, they have this massive stack of, well, if these three words are in a string together or, and we're on this topic and we want to be conversational and it's, you know, um, blah, 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 all the inputs, then you go, all right, the probability of the next word, the most probable next word is, you know, the, and then they go on. The amount of computing power is mind boggling that goes into those things. But it's understanding what's under the hood. So now what we have are inputs where we don't know where they're coming from because the database can be, uh, what do you want to call it, flawed or biased. Yeah. Then we don't understand what's going on under the hood, meaning the engine. And then the outputs are hallucinatory. <laughs> yeah, that's, I understand that that's the new term for when it, it just doesn't make sense what the output is. You yeah. mean, I, you know, I said, could you write me a resume? And apparently I went to UCLA at some point in my life. And I, like, I, I went through the airport in LA a couple of times. You know, does that count as a degree in, in UCLA? No, <laughs> I don't know where it came <laughs> up with that. So anyway, the, the issue is, is that... Even if, I mean, it, I think it's just criminal if you're, you know, building or using the, not using these models, it's that there's no fundamental understanding of what it is and, and how to create it and where the boundaries and barriers are and stuff like that. But I'm not talking about these massive complex models. I'm talking about, I want to calculate sample sizes, you know, and there's a handful of assumptions and I'm going to blow it or, well, a radius works for everything, right? No, um, I get it all the time in the reliability world. People want to throw it in the chamber and see what happens. And so they put it in a temperature and humidity chamber. And I says, why are you putting it in the temperature and humidity chamber? Well, we want to see what fails. Well, what's the most likely thing to fail, right? What are you, what are you most worried about? Oh, vibration from transportation. Well, are you vibrating it in the temperature and humidity chamber or in the, you know, and they go, no, we don't have a vibration table. So we're using this, this one over here, and that's our test. If it passes that, it'll be good because we tested it. And, I, you know, there's just something wrong with the logic here. <laughs> and then they use the Arrhenius equation because it was at a high temperature to say, well, it'll be good for 20 years. And they never use vibration, and they know that the vibration's a problem. I, I, uh, I don't know. I've sighed too many times on this one, but it's frustrating when 
somebody grabs a formula and just runs with it and says, oh, this is cool. I'll use that. And not understanding or like um, uh, simple data analysis in, in reliability world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a bunch of time to failure data. My pet peeve is people will then tally up how many hours all these things ran and divide divided into the number of uh, or failures divided by the number of failures they saw and call it an MTBF or MTTF and ignore the patterns in the data set. You know, you just kind of lose a bunch of information or worse as they do a Weibull analysis, but they didn't like that answer. So they use a log normal instead. And then they said, well, I don't like that answer. So they're not going to use a gamma distribution because they get the answer they want. So it really comes <sighs> down to really understanding what you're doing yeah. and following your procedure, writing down your assumptions, your uh, data, you know, your your boundary conditions. Yeah. Um, and then basically analyzing it for that boundary and for that condition. That's what it comes down to. Unfortunately, <laughs> too many of us have been trained to do plug and Plug and play or plug and pray. I don't know. What well, yeah, it was called plug and play when I went to schools. And, um, and, <laughs> I, and I don't know if I ever told you this story. Let, let me know. As I, when I was in college, I was a physics major, basically. But I was also required to take a handful of these engineering classes, the mecha- uh, civil engineering classes. Uh-huh. And one of them was on mechanics. And it's basically, you know, if you got a beam, how much can you load it before it breaks? That kind of stuff. You know, what's the forces across this beam? And, and, and then it got into dynamic mechanics and stuff like so. Then we had swinging pendulums and all of those. And we're doing this all by hand. And we're using Lagrange and the Hamiltonian's um, structures, basically, approaches to it. And in the physics department, we learned how to derive it from those the Lagrange formula. Yeah. It's very generic formula, but and and we could derive it right from that, and then we'd go off and solve the problem. But we started with well, what are what are our assumptions? What are the boundaries we have? What are, what do we know and don't know? And then we go create that f- plug and play formula to go solve the problem. Whereas the mechanics department, the engineering department, they would show us the derivations on the chalkboard. And then give us the the plug and pray formulas on a cheat sheet to take the test. And the test was basically recognizing which formulas would solve this particular problem. And if you guessed wrong, then you would still get an answer or you'd, you wouldn't have one of the variables you needed to plug it in or you had too many variables or whatever. And I said, this is a pain in the butt. There's 50 formulas over here. I'm not going to memorize the, which problem type fits each of these things. I know how to derive all these things. So I read the problem, I drove the equation and solved it. And and that professor only gave me credit for the answer, which was right. Uh-huh. But he but he said you didn't use the right formula. I says, I got the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't grade it. He couldn't grade somebody deriving the equation from what he was showing us on the board. He was just kind of writing down what he saw someplace else. He didn't know how to use these things. By the way, but my thought, I think this segment should be called plug and pray. <laughs> yeah, there we go. We can rename that. <laughs> we'll call that that. But it's, it's one of those things that 
I think computers, I mean, calculators to start with, and then computers later. Yeah, one guy in in high school had one of these. Was one of the first people that had a calculator. I was using a slide rule, and That's what I was doing, yeah. yeah. And he was plugging in numbers, and he gets, uh, I think, the how many moles are at the end of this reaction or something like that. And he did the calculations on his calculator, and he got ni- minus forty seven moles. Hmm. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he wrote it down, underlined it twice and thought he had an answer way before anybody else. And I'm like, okay, I think there's a lack of understanding here. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we have too much of that. And that's uh, basically, I think we started this whole segment podcast with formula misuse and misunderstanding. So <laughs> well, there, there's part of it. And it, some of it is the way we're being taught stuff. It's just, there's lots and lots of stuff out there. There's lots of solutions available online. There's, we can Google it and it comes up with an equation and there's an example. We just run it. The, my bottom line is, is that before you pull out an equation out of anywhere or set up a formula in your Excel sheet or whatever package you're using is play with it. What is it good for? Where did it come from? Why was it derived? You know, where where is it useful for? It, uh, if it's for a chemical equation, really don't use it to for you know how much load something can take. It's really irrelevant. Um, just because you can get a number out of it doesn't mean it's useful. Um, but it's a healthy skepticism, not only of your own calculations and how you set it up, but also are you using the right equation? Are you using the right formula? Are you approaching this problem in an appropriate way? And I don't you know. know my, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm basically a one-trick pony. You know that one. It really comes down to risk analysis. <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I had to throw the plug in. Um, yeah, I mean, um, do back of the envelope. Look at the assumptions. Yep. Because quite often, if you don't know what problem you're solving, uh, well, any solution will work. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, yeah, or no solution will work. <laughs> that's right. Now that's a good way to phrase it. If you don't know what the problem is, it's hard to tell what what path to take to solve it and what what approach you should be doing. Um, that's a good good point of it. But it, the idea is. is yeah, if you're going to pull out an equation or if you're challenged, you know, to solve something, it, it, double check the basic assumption. I think you laid it out appropriately, Greg. So it's, um, but yeah, if you don't, you're taking a risk. You will get a number and somebody like me is going to sit there and go, well, that's not useful. Or you will get misleading results and you'll waste a bunch of money and time or you get lucky and it, nobody cares and it just works or, it, you know, but it's, I don't know. There's something about that. The code of ethics and engineering is you kind of need to know what you're doing. And I think the other part of that is if you don't know what you're doing, uh, don't do it. Yeah. Get some help. Go talk to people. We're not in taking a you know test on our own. It's we've got colleagues and peers and a whole world full of people that know a lot more than any of us individually do. Go talk to That's them. That's right. Especially on critical applications or critical use cases. You know, yeah. just talk to somebody. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, that's going to be your assurance cycle, closing out the 
PDCA or whatever you want to call it, you know? Well, it's, it's another pair of eyes and double checking your work. And, and in some industries it's required, you know, somebody reruns the calculations and, re, you know, looks at it in a different way. I think that it, well, there's a whole lot more to it, but I think we can come back to another uh, podcast on, you know, why people don't want to open a book kind of thing, but that's a different different topic for a different day. But the, the yeah. idea is, is that, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this and you've, you're facing a problem or you're running, you have to solve something and you got in it, you know, any doubt that you're in using the right formula or equation, it's not guaranteed that Greg or I, the other host of the show know, but we've seen a lot and we might be able to say, you know, you might want to look at it a little different way. Or you have somebody in your company, you know, that you can run it past and say, hey, you know, this is the way I'm thinking of approaching it. Does this make sense? Here's here's what we're trying to do. Just get that second pair of eyes on it and and talk it through. Are you following basic procedure? Is this the right approach? Is this the right formula? Do I have the right inputs for this problem or can I solve this? Is this the right? Am I in the right space? Um, or like I said, ask us, you can head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. There's a couple of ways to get in touch with us there. And Greg and I and the other hosts of the show are available through LinkedIn and through our about pages. So plenty of ways for you to get in touch with us. Um, and we'd love to hear from you. This, this question came from somebody's, you know, asking, this doesn't, you know, I'm trying to do this and I'm not sure if it's making sense and which is really the first step. And to me is that you start, you have to at least question what, you know, are you doing this right? Uh, and we're glad to help if we can. And, uh, hopefully talk about some of the successes where you, you know, pulled away from making a big mistake and, and, uh, and, uh, did the right thing. So anyway, it's, I don't know. Anything else, Greg? Uh, know what you know. Acknowledge what you don't know. Reach out for help. Hey, that sounds like a bumper sticker. We gotta, yeah. maybe, <laughs> maybe we should do merchandise for this podcast. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thanks, Greg. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Brett, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Right. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.